It's late summer in the Northeast US, and I'm taking a weekend ride through Cape Cod. My mission is to check in on my elderly relatives who have summer homes here in the area. I'm seldom surprised by the stories I hear while catching up on summer activities and family gossip, but these visits did yield one topic that did surprise me a bit. It, it actually came up twice in separate conversations, once with my 75-year-old mom and then again with my 84-year-old aunt. Both were targeted this summer by scammers, and in one case quite successfully. As someone who works in the cybersecurity and fraud space, naturally these conversations piqued my interest. I pulled out my phone and began recording. So here's my mom, her, her name's Paulette. I got an email saying that I had been charged $611.03 on my Amazon card for my package. And if I didn't order this package, call this number, which of course I did because I don't have an Amazon account because I don't order much online. And the man kind of led me on and said, I can't seem to retrieve that order. Tell me what your card number is. And of course, like an idiot, I did. So he was in my phone and somehow, shortly thereafter, I got something taken out of my bank account. What happened next, I still can't fully put together. Like all good scammers, they had just enough information to confuse their mark, pressure her, and collect a treasure trove of information. In the end, they had both a credit card number and attempted banking transfers. Eventually, she got a notification from her bank that something was fishy. They froze her accounts, and the process of cleanup, investigations, and reimbursements all began. And the rerouting of all those automatic payments that nowadays we all take for granted. Well, the problem is, is that you have to notify so many people because we pay our oil here at this house at the Cape. They come and deliver and they just charge my credit card. You put transponders on it. I mean, just so many things. Our car insurances, we pay twice a year. What else do I pay? I pay a couple bills on there that are just automatic. But I had to call the insurance company. I had to call Social Security. My husband's retirement. Our investment firm had to be notified that somebody's in our accounts and we need to change some numbers around here. A few weeks and a lot of aggravation later, my parents' issue eventually got resolved. Their money was reimbursed, but not without a very stressful toll. What they weren't aware of was that at nearly the exact same time, my mother's sister was also being targeted. My Auntie Sue is 84 years old, a retired school teacher, and she just wrapped up her 50th summer running a small fine art and antiques shop out of her converted garage in Barnstable, Massachusetts. Here's my Auntie Sue. I received an email from the president of the Cape Cod Antique Dealers Association, which puts out the brochure that I just described. And in the emails, Dear Suzanne, it reads, I hate to lean on you for this, but I'm in a very bad patch right now, and I know I can rely on you to do this. You know that the Antiques Association gives the amount of money each year to charity. This year, we determined that the veterans should get it. 
but would you be kind enough to go to a local CVS or a similar commercial place and buy $500 in $100 denominations of gift cards and then hold on to them and I'll be in touch with you to pick them up and I'll reimburse you from the treasury of the Cape Cod Antiques Dealers Association for your doing this for me. Thank you so much. Fortunately, this story had a better ending. So the excuses sounded plausible and rational, but I didn't do anything right away because I was somewhat suspicious. And I let it go and later that day, I called my bank or my financial advisor. And I said, does this sound fishy to you? And the financial advisor said, absolutely. We get these hundreds of times a month. And this sounds like a classic one, do not respond. But do call the lady from whom you receive the email to alert other people because they undoubtedly sent the same email to everybody else who's listed in that brochure. And so I did, and she did send everybody a flash email alerting us. These scams are sadly all too common. Recent FBI statistics reveal that in 2020 alone, cyber criminals stole $1.8 billion from older Americans. These are people who aren't fully comfortable with computers or online banking or discussing finances over the phone. They prey on their fears and anxieties. First of all, I think my age factor, I'm 84 years old, I think perhaps my age, they must go through the town lists and get people's ages and then they just get on the phone from all over the country. And I would say of late, meaning in the past two months, I get a minimum of five a day, a minimum. And that's exactly the point, which makes the subject of this podcast, online fraud, so important. These stories that I heard in the living rooms of my parents and my aunt on a random afternoon in September, they get repeated over and over and over throughout the world. And the stakes can be a lot greater, a lot more devastating than the inconveniences that my mom and my aunt suffered. My name is Peter Beardmore. As I mentioned, I've worked in the computer security, risk management, and anti-fraud space for a couple of decades. And I recently joined a company called Biocatch, who supported my idea to create this podcast. Over the course of this first season, we're going to explore what happens in some of the criminal networks that perpetrate cybercrime and fraud all over the world, and how financial institutions go about detecting and preventing fraud, and how some organizations like Biocatch are innovating with new technology and statistical analytics to defy the conventional approaches of how fraud prevention happens. And in doing so, identify the behavioral tells that tip the hands of cybercriminals and flip the tables on fraudsters. Let me draw a frame of reference for what Biocatch is up to from a story you may have already heard. Have you ever read the book or seen the movie Moneyball? This was a book written by Michael Lewis and the movie starring Brad Pitt. It's the story of Billy Bean, who as general manager of the Oakland A's, faced an impossible task. How to build a professional baseball team in a small market that can compete with teams like the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox, who have three times the budget to pay for top talent. What do you do? Well, 
in the case of Billy Bean, he followed a cast-off statistical philosophy called sabermetrics, which identified inefficiencies in how baseball players were valued and how the game itself is played. It turned out the statistics that baseball had relied on for decades, batting average, runs batted in, pitch speed, fielding errors, these were not the best indicators of player value. While the top teams were paying top dollar for home runs, Billy Bean was paying bargain prices for on-base percentage and slugging. His successes revolutionized a game that literally had a century of conventional thinking behind it. Now, online banking isn't a century-old game, but the banking industry, modern banking, is many centuries older than even baseball. Let's think for a moment about the security structures that banking has relied upon. Remember Willie Sutton, the famous bank robber who, when asked why he robbed banks, answered, because that's where the money is? Back in the day, bank security depended on big safes, heavy trucks, men with guns, guys in suits chasing check fraudsters like Frank Abagnale, and tellers. Yes, you heard me right, bank tellers. For decades, the linchpin of bank security was the teller, the person who would check your ID if they didn't know you before a withdrawal, but more probably knew your name and maybe even knew your family. But when online banking became a thing a couple decades ago, that all changed. Imagine for just a moment all your money accessible to anyone with the right username and password. And you know, for a while, that was the state of the industry. It evolved, of course. There's Know Your Customer, or KYC as it's known in the industry, or Anti-Money Laundering, AML. These regulations came about requiring steps to validate authenticity of new accounts. But when usernames, passwords, government IDs, addresses, phone numbers, credit card numbers, personal history, when all this stuff has been hacked in data breach after data breach and made available on the dark web for pennies, what's the point? Now, fraud prevention services that matched IP addresses and fingerprinted devices came into fashion. Today, if you add a new payee or make a large transfer, you may be asked to enter a one-time passcode that the bank texted to your phone. But all of those techniques, of course, can be overcome by criminal ingenuity and malware, remote access technologies, social engineering scams. And while none of these security techniques are any panacea, they can also be frustrating for customers. The exact same people who bankers and merchants want to delight with their easy online experiences. Oh, and here's the other problem. When you robbed a bank back in Willie Sutton's day, the most you'd get away with was the currency and valuables locked in the vault of that particular branch. The Willie Suttons of today have much more lucrative targets. In episode two, We'll look at a crime syndicate whose account takeover campaign made away with $100 million. So, like in a high-stakes card game, what are the cybercriminals' tells that might tip their hand? When the field of play is seemingly too imbalanced, what are the sabermetrics of online banking and e-commerce? It's the topic we'll be exploring throughout this podcast series behavioral biometrics. But before we get into a detailed explanation, let me let you into a conversation I had with Yuri Rivner, 
one of the founders of Biocatch, and how he came across this technology as it was first presented to him by the other founders. So I was sitting at the conference room of the RSA Development Center in Israel. RSA acquired a startup company in Israel. I was head of new technologies. And that was a few months after the very famous RSA hack, where a foreign state invaded the RSA network. It was a very famous story on the news. Uh, a couple of folks came to present their new technology, uh, behavioral biometrics. So Yuri was working for RSA, which at the time was one of the biggest vendors in cybersecurity. And they had just been breached majorly. In addition to managing their own breach, their ability to help banks fight fraud was also under major pressure. Here's Yuri again. And I was immediately intrigued. They were talking about collecting uh, mouse information, collecting the way the user is typing. But beyond just creating a profile, they had a very interesting notion. And the notion is that as the user operates inside the application, let's say that you're moving the mouse, you want to click on something, on route to the target, uh, the system would cause the cursor, the mouse cursor, to essentially veer off just by a bit. So if you make no corrections, you're going to miss the target by an inch, let's say. Now, your brain will simply not let you do this. Your eyes will pick up on the fact that the mouse is veering off. Your brain will immediately calculate and create a corrective maneuver, and you're going to be on target. The thing is that you're not going to be aware of that. It's part of the automated motor control functionality that happens naturally. Now, if you're a bot, you're not going to be able to do that. You don't have a set of eyes, brain, and this sort of corrective mechanism. And different people are responding in a different way, which is fascinating. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here. But Yuri's explaining that he stumbled into technology that can differentiate between human and bot behavior. Meanwhile, bots and malware infections were rampant. And the major solution at the time to thwart bots were those CAPTCHAs that ask you to type in letters that appear in cursive or click on palm trees in a picture. Users hate those. High abandonment rates. And here's something that can accomplish the same task continuously without requiring any additional user interaction. But wait, there's more. Let's say that the mouse disappears, which happens from time to time. People search for the mouse in a different way. Some of them in very wide circles, some of them very nervous and edgy, some of them use the trackpad, some of them type something on the keyboard. There are all sorts of uh, response strategies to these sort of things. And so, what Yuri was realizing here, with the benefit of a decade of hindsight, of course, I can say this like it was obvious, it wasn't, was that not only could the technology differentiate between bots and humans, but also between humans, because each person has their own behavior patterns. I just said, hey, this is, this is very cool. This is out-of-the-box thinking, and it might help because the traditional controls were no longer holding. And I'm talking about cybersecurity as a general sort of thing, but also fraud detection. Uh, back then, fraud detection had some sort of crisis point because the fraudsters were beating every possible line of defense that the banks uh, had around end users and were able to kind of sneak into the end user account, 
typically using some sort of malware or uh, social engineering and things like that and essentially uh, move money out. What Yuri and the team at Biocatch had uncovered 10 years or so ago was the realization of a few key facts. How you move your mouse, hold your phone, or even your typing speed in certain fields, the pauses you take, these behaviors can be quantified and analyzed. Of course, back in 2011 and 2012, the notion that online behavior could be shared through the cloud in real time, run through machine learning algorithms informed by a decade of transactions and indexed behavior, and immediately used to determine if the user is genuine, if the user's intentions are malicious, if the user may be under the influence of a scammer, that all seemed like science fiction. And at the time, it was. But the seeds of possibility had been planted. And today, behavioral biometrics, those capabilities to seamlessly root out online fraud by using machines to observe behavior, it's real. In later episodes, we'll discuss exactly how it all comes together. We'll even share some of the indicators that inform behavioral biometrics. But before we do that, I want to wrap up this episode with part of a conversation I had with Howard Edelstein. Howard was a semi-retired New York City fintech executive who was doing some investing and serving on some corporate boards when he came across Biocatch just a few years after Yuri. Well, I must admit my first impression, being from New York, of course, was you've got to be bloody kidding me, right? You're going to actually know who I am by how I interact with my machine? It took me a bit of a while to say, okay, this is science fiction after I grew up in the Star Trek generation, right? So I've got this really young guy, he's really smart, telling me that how I type, move my mouse, hold my phone, and do all kinds of other things like that could actually profile me. An analogy that Howard shared with me was, imagine meeting a friend at a restaurant at night, and your friend is approaching the restaurant, but you can't really see their face. But you can recognize them, somehow. Maybe by their gait, the way they walk. Now, if someone asked you to describe or even mimic their gait, you you probably couldn't do it. Nevertheless, there's somehow you know it's them by their approach without a view of their face or even hearing their voice. So it became really clear that you could actually recognize someone's identity by their behavior. And if you could do that in the street at night, going to a restaurant, you should be able to do it online. The real beauty or trick is the data. What are the variables? What are the inputs? What are the signals that you could use to collect in order to do that? And that's what these guys have pioneered and perfected. So I found it very science fiction on the one hand, but I wanted to see if it was real. Suffice to say, Howard eventually was convinced. So much so, he invested in the company and eventually took on the role as Biocatch's CEO. We'll hear again from Howard and Yuri in future episodes. We'll hear from industry experts, a former federal financial crimes prosecutor, another victim or two. And we'll hear from some of the people who are in the trenches applying behavioral biometrics, this technology that seemed like science fiction just a few years ago, to do amazing things, like protecting my mom and my aunt and you and yours. Speaking of elderly relatives and innovating with science fiction-like technology, 
Would you believe that behavioral biometrics can, with high reliability, estimate the age of an online user? So when information for someone who's in their 80s is entered by someone who's actually in their 30s, well, that mismatch can be detected. We'll delve into age analytics in future episodes, too. Just another way behavioral biometrics makes life online more trustworthy and satisfying. Digital Tells is written and narrated by me, Peter Beardmore, in partnership with my producer, Doug Stevens of Creative Audio and Music, and with the unwavering support and sponsorship of my employer, Biocatch. Special thanks to my mom and my aunt, and to Yuri Rivner and Howard Edelstein. For more information about this episode, behavioral biometrics, or just to share a comment or idea, please visit biocatch.com slash podcast. Join us for episode two of Digital Tells, in which we'll explore account takeover fraud, what happens when cybercriminals get into bank accounts, and how behavioral biometrics changes the game. Until then, take care.